Pastor Danielle is here to give the Bible boxes for the kids, so if you want to meet her at the back. The rest of us, let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1. The second book of the New Testament, Mark chapter 1. We're starting with what was probably the first of the Gospels written and the very first chapter of those Gospels. And we focus today on Jesus' call of the disciples, this executive team, to start his global organization. It is said that the most important decision that any leader makes is the team of leaders that he or she brings around them so that they can, in fact, do the work together. And so I imagine what it would be like. Put yourself in Jesus' place, in fact. Now imagine that you are going to start a, a global organization. In fact, it's going to be an organization that is going to last for thousands of years. It's going to be multicultural, multilingual. It's going to uh, happen in every socioeconomic class. It's going to happen uh, throughout all kinds of situations. It's capable of not only being resilient, but it's going to be able to handle any of the changes in political systems or economic systems or cultural milieu that might surround it. It's an organization, in fact, that is voluntary. The people who participate in this organization not only are going to come to be a part of this and commit themselves, but they are going to voluntarily become a part. And once they become a part, the Lord of the church is going to say, and I want your whole life. I want everything that you are. I want you to become a part of something that will give you a purpose even beyond your grave. I want you to accept the values and the principles and the, the teachings of the organization and embed them within the whole of your life. Now, if that was your task, if you were Jesus at that moment in time, how would you go about that? How would you decide what leaders need to be a part of your global eternal organization? Would you contact perhaps the, the best leaders of a similar organization, another religion that has shown itself to be, in fact, effective in time? Or would you go perhaps to a well-known school, perhaps the school of Hillel, find the very best of the rabbis and the best of the teachers, the best educated? Would you call them to be a part? Uh, would you go perhaps to specialty businesses, Find the very best lawyer, the very best accountant, the very best uh, executive manager that you could find, the admired and, and uh, educated professionals. Is, is that where you would go to find your leaders? In my research this week, I was looking at, at how people choose leaders, and I came across a, a wonderful grid. It's talking about how, in any organization you might do, how you would find a leader that would help you uh, have optimum uh, results for it. And the author suggests, along with, the very first thing he said is finding the person at the right season of their career, because somebody might be a great leader 10 years from now, but they're not quite ready uh, to take on the responsibilities. But then he said that you want to have, first of all, people who will do things the right way. And that is that they will do it with honesty and integrity and with, with hard work and, and faithfulness and, and all the things that would be doing business the right way, as well as people who get things done, people who have right results that are actually 
able to accomplish something. He noticed on the bottom of the chart that people who go about the task, who get things done but without integrity and without honesty, not doing it the right way, we need to avoid because they will, in fact, destroy an organization in a quick order and not allow it to continue on. He also notes that if you've got someone with good uh, integrity and, and hard work and faithfulness, that they can be teachable. And they could, in fact, depending on their skills, move over to optimum. But you'd want to have uh, kind of the, the best of both. And I really like the, this grid because it speaks to my, my strategic thinking and, and uh, looking at, okay, how, how do you go about the task or the purpose of accomplishing something? So if I'd been Jesus, I would have certainly wanted to use a grid like this. And I would have uh, set about the task of finding the, the right leaders to do this global unending church. But is that what Jesus did? Did he get the best professionals, the best educated, those who had uh, shown promise and experience and accomplishment in other related fields? Did he find an optimal leader? No. Four of the disciples, and perhaps even five, were fishermen. Another was a collaborator with the Roman occupation and collected their taxes for them. Bartholomew Nathaniel was most probably a wealthy trust baby. We all know them. Simon was a revolutionary. Judas was a traitor and a thief, perhaps, we're told. The other, we don't even know, either in scripture or tradition, what they did, what was their profession. They had no resumes. Now, looking at this from a human point of view, this would be an unlikely team to start a 2,000-year, up to this point, organization and a kingdom that has no end. Yet the evidence is clear. Through 2,000 years later, after starting with the 12 and the 120 in the upper room, the Church of Jesus Christ is now the largest organization on the planet, secular or sacred. It is growing faster than any other religion because of the conversions to Christianity, not just birth, which is how uh, the second fastest organization is growing. So we come back to the question, how did Jesus do this then? How does Jesus choose his people to do his work? What is the divine method for accomplishing the choosing of leaders? And why is it uh, that God seems to, in every generation, certainly in our lives, choose normal people with normal lives to do things that are beyond their wildest imaginations? of accomplishing eternal things. Well, that's what we're going to study today. At the very beginning now of the Gospel account, as Jesus is beginning his public ministry in the first chapter of Mark, we're going to start with the 14th verse, and we're going to go through the 20th. The NIV translators call this section, Jesus announces the good news. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. 
And then the next section, God calls his first disciples. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now keep that open before you, and let's pray. Father, each of us are here today because we are either following you or seeking, considering following you. And so I would ask that you would uniquely speak to us. We know that your Holy Spirit can communicate in ways that are deeper than words. And so be with every person who's here. And uh, we will, of course, place everything in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. The key to understanding how Jesus works and choosing who he's going to invite to be participants, leaders within his organization, is found in verse 17, when he says, To the fishermen that he had called, Come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now notice what he does not say to the fishermen. He does not say, Come, join my organization, and I will have you do something so different from what you know that you'll be overwhelmed and you'll feel foolish. Nor does he say, come follow me and I'll make you a spectator of everything that I'm doing. Nor does he say, I have a few people. We'll call them clergy, which means educated ones. And we'll all watch them and cheer them on as they serve me. Nor does he say, I'll keep you close and never send you out. I'll keep you within my house and you'll never experience the real purposeful life of being a part of what I'm doing in the world. No, he doesn't say any of those things to the fishermen or to any of us whom he calls to follow him. He says, follow me. And I'll take the fishing life skills that you've honed over the years, knowing just the right depth where the fish are, knowing exactly where to cast the net and how to gather them in, knowing what is attractive to those that you're trying to reach. I'll take these unique experiences, these unique personality and gifting, and I'll give you tasks that match who you are both naturally and supernaturally. And you will then flourish within my care. He, re he would even go on to say, you can't even begin to imagine now what your life is going to be able to accomplish if you'll follow me. What people are going to say about you thousands of years from now in gratitude for your faithful service if you are willing to follow me. Now, Matthew's call does not include the explanation that he gave to the fishermen that he called. For Matthew had no idea how to fish. He had never discovered the right depth of a conversation that allows you to know where a person really is. 
He had never discovered how to gather them in and bring them into the boat, into the fellowship of the church. He did not know how to attract them. His skills were different. His experience was different. Matthew's call seems to be about the fact that he was a despised tax collector, a social outcast who spent his time with other social outcasts, and that Jesus loves those who are called sinners by the nice religious people. He wants his leader to be able to bring that unique experience to the table, to the leadership team, to the decision-making of his church. But we also know from Matthew's gospel that he was called because he was an accountant and he was highly organized. He could keep track of all kinds of taxes in the appropriate columns. And so he took this organizational skill and Matthew gives us the story of Jesus and organizes it like the Exodus event, as we see here in this slide. But it's far greater than that. If you read all of Matthew, he parallels the story of Jesus with the Old Testament redemption and and history accounts, putting them in parallel columns and discourses like an accountant. It's an amazing thing. And so the early church saw this skill that he had to, to bring together the old with the new and to explain how God is still doing the same kind of redemptive acts throughout time. And so it became the, the book that bridges the Old and the New Testament, the first of the books that we place in the New Testament. But the point is this. Each disciple, then and now, are brought onto the team because of their own unique abilities, personalities, gifting, skill sets, relationships, experiences, opportunities, It is the uniqueness of each of us that causes us to be of infinite worth to God's work in the world as he loves us and empowers us to do his work. Let me give a modern example of this. We spent some time with, with Gary and Kathy Galton last week. And you all know her well. She's been here several times. She's the founder of Heavenly Treasures, our free Methodist micro-industry missions organization that literally employs thousands of people throughout the world and has them with dignity creating uh, objects that are worthy of being sold. And so these artists uh, are able to, in fact, create things that Americans use then our purchasing power to provide work and to provide an income for these who would not have an income throughout the world. Well, I contacted Kathy because she said it when she was here the first time and we all appreciated her understanding that she never thought that God could use her. She's a pastor's wife, a superintendent's wife, and she never thought that she had any skills or gifts. She couldn't play the piano, she couldn't teach, she couldn't do anything. But she told us she had the gift of shopping and that her gift of shopping, God had finely tuned over a period of time. And her uniquely trained, uniquely set of skills are what God then used to create heavenly treasures because she knows how to go into a region and knows what will be of interest to the American consumer. And so she started this amazing ministry that is now in many countries 
and is employing thousands of people. Now, I obviously know you, but I don't know all your unique experiences and skill sets and gifting and interest. I do know that God will take whatever you've experienced and if you will present yourself to him, he will use you to accomplish great things far beyond anything you can imagine. I know that God is calling each of us and he takes that blend of the natural skills and life and experiences, including the disasters and illnesses and difficulties of our lives, and weaves us together with then the supernatural gifting that he allows us to have this holistic ministry within our own unique place, within our businesses and schools and homes and families and communities that accomplish his eternal purpose his kingdom will increase. When we look back at the disciples, we recognize that Jesus chose just those people. And I suppose, I don't know this, but I suppose he could have chosen almost any 12 who were willing to respond and follow him. And he would have accomplished the same because that's what he's still doing today. He's working through just normal people doing normal work in the life of, of the town and community in which they live. But one of the things we see that is necessary for us to be a part of this is that we would first of all stop and listen when he calls and then consider and respond. In very simple terms, that's what we see in the Twelve. And it's one of the most important uh, realities is that it's not difficult to become a part of the kingdom of God. He has died and is dying to have you in his kingdom and in his family. But there are two steps to it, and each of them have two steps. First, stop and listen, and then consider and respond. So I want you to stop for a moment and listen to the first one. One of the primary gifts of a worship service is that you have detached from this world for just a moment. You've stopped. We've stepped out of time in, in essence. We've stepped into eternity. We've come home to the Father. We're stopped and we're listening. One of the, one of the things that's amazing to me as a pastor, and you don't get to see it from my vantage point each week, is that I am impressed with the diligent attention of a congregation when you speak. Literally hundreds and hundreds of you come every week and stop and listen, and you're diligent. You're open. You want to know, what does God have for me today? What is he saying to me? And we're only one sanctuary of over 600,000 sanctuaries just in the United States let alone throughout the world. 120 sanctuaries just in Santa Barbara where people today are stopping and they're listening to what does God have for them today. Now Peter and Andrew and James and John and the other members of the Twelve could have just kept right on working when Jesus came by. 
Many people do. Many people know that they're invited into God's house this day, but they're just going to keep right on working or they're going to keep right on busy and they're not going to stop and listen. There's a phrase that C.S. Lewis uses when he talks about how many of us give our hearts to no one, including God, that we wrap it carefully round with little hobbies and little luxuries, avoiding any entanglement with anyone, let alone God. We lock it up safe in the casket and coffin of our selfishness. Now, I think that is true for some. Not as many, I think, as, as we would think. Some do choose to live a shallow, a shallow and a selfish life. There's no doubt about that. But my experience is that far more often take the days of our lives and just fill them up with work and busyness and electronics. And we never have a moment to quiet. I've told you before that one of the things I think that's so funny when I take my prayer walk out on the cliff of the ocean on Wilcox is how many people are wired and don't get to hear the waves and the birds and the quiet thoughts and God could speak through. And God does speak through the earthquake and fire at times. He shouts through our pain. But most often he speaks in that still small voice we sang about. The silence that speaks. And in order to hear that, you have to stop and quiet yourself and listen, meditating on who he is and, and what he has to say. So the first step is that we do what we're doing right now. We stop and we listen. The second step is to consider and respond. Now, we're not told that Peter and Simon and James and John considered the reality of responding. In fact, I've, I've seen, and we even sang it this morning in one of the hymns, but I've seen it in many different sermons, that they didn't think about it. They just stopped and they, they uh, jumped into discipleship. I don't think that that's true. I don't think we have in those words the whole story. We know that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptizer. So he was most probably there when John said, Behold the Lamb of the world who takes away the sin of the earth. And that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. So surely, if Peter and James and John weren't there at that time, when they were out fishing in those long hours on the boats, they must have had lots of conversations about who this Jesus is and why he's come and should we follow him and become a disciple of who he is and what he's done? The same is true for, for us. When we encounter Jesus, we begin long conversations. We consider, should we follow Jesus? Is he worthy of our lives? Does he, in fact, say truth? And if he does, does that truth set us free? We consider and then we respond as God's truth permeates our minds and our hearts, our actions, our will. This morning I invite you to respond. Your vocation, your calling, is to respond to God's call and do a work far beyond your ability. Yet it's a work which God will use everything that you are every experience, every thought, every personality quirk, every 
idea, moment, and gifting for his purpose. Let's respond to God. <laughs>